This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. How's everybody doing tonight? So how about tonight's music by Shannon Wurst? Y'all like Shannon? From Fayetteville, Arkansas, award-winning singer-songwriter Shannon Wurst has firmly established herself at the intersection of everyman folk and Americana, rooted in the traditions of Casey Chambers, Allison Krause, and Dolly Parton. More can be found at ShannonWurst.com. All right, well, welcome to Tales from the South, where Southerners bring their own true stories to life. It is New Year's Eve, and we are on location at the Bistro at the Chancellor Hotel in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Tales from the South is presented by Temenos Publishing Company and the Midnight Muse Writing Workshops. And tonight's show is in conjunction with Last Night Fayetteville. And I'm your host, Paula Martin Morell. What do y'all think about our set back here? Y'all like our set? These Delta screen doors with mixed media portraiture by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox from her Images of the American South collection and are for sale. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. Our listeners can find out more about these pieces and V.L. at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern style storytelling? Tonight, our stories are all related, in one way or another, to a case of mistaken identity. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who lived them. Later tonight, Vicki Penny's Christmas Eve rescuers are, let's just say, interesting. And we'll end the night with Kim McGoy as he is caught in the middle of the act. But let's start the night here at Tales from the South with Michael Casey and an unforeseen identity crisis in... Pleased to meet you, Mr. Williams. Introduce us. The graduate student at the front of the line beamed, eagerly catching my eye and holding it firmly. Introduce us. I scanned the faces, familiar all of them, faces I'd come to know over the past year of classes, of collaboration, of conflicts, of reconciliation, but no names came. A seed of panic sprouted as I scanned, again, the familiar sea. Nothing. The panic took root, wrapping itself around my memory with the tenacity of kudzu. Time was running out. I had to come up with something. And at the moment, I wasn't even sure of my own name. It was 1997 when my dad rode his motorcycle from Spokane, Washington to Springfield, Missouri. He was 68 years old at the time. And the trip must have been hard on him, sleeping alongside the road and in campgrounds as he did. 
always on to something ingenious. Dad hadn't much more than sat down before, uh, before he demanded we follow him back outside so he could show us how he pitched his tent. <clears throat> he popped open the cargo compartment of his Pacific Coast cruiser and pulled out a wad scarcely larger than an umbrella. It was fashioned of some feather-like nylon fabric with some sort of fiberglass coils inside it. He sprung into a tent when he pitched it away from him like a pescadero would throw a purse net. I hadn't seen the old man for a couple of years and remember thinking what good shape he must still be in to have made that journey on that motorcycle. Dad had always been a physical presence. Although he stood more than an inch shy of six feet, he was slender, not slight, and light as a leprechaun on his feet, as though the slightest hint of music might set him to dancing a jig. His was a countenance of thoughtful resolve, a warm, rich smile beneath deep-set gray eyes that could dominate the most cantankerous construction crew. His weathered skin betrayed a lifetime of exposure to the elements. In his retirement, he took to wearing black cowboy boots, creased denim jeans, a white button-down Oxford shirt, and a black leather vest. His black hair had gone to salt and pepper and gave way to about three weeks' worth of matching beard. He, un he folded the tent, stashed it before we went back in the house to catch up. We talked about school. Dad kept telling me how proud he was. I suspected, I suspected uh, he was more surprised than anything, just like everybody else, <laughs> just like me. I was in grad school at SMSU, and the second year of my English assistantship had me functioning as the assistant director of the writing center. I was there by accident, you know. Uh, I'd begun college at 35 after a construction fall broke both legs in 1989. Now I was working on a master's degree, first generation always supportive of me and my unlikely education, Dad had joined me on my literary journey. Together we sailed with Ahab, exchanging our observations by telephone. We plowed through 2,000 years of Western philosophy and literary theory. We read Thomas Hardy. We read Maya Angelou. We wondered at the natural world and the world that lay beyond. He had enrolled in Kansas State after graduating high school back in 1947, but yearned to follow his father's calling, which was construction. Ralph had held some high positions on some big projects, and Pat couldn't wait for a degree. After one year, he abandoned school and joined the Carpenters Union that set him on a long, winding road to just about anywhere but back home. It's easy to do, you know, quitting school, especially when you're young, strong. 
I followed Ralph's and Dad's calling, construction. That path, however, had ended abruptly for me, and suddenly I was on the road less traveled, especially where I came from. Dad would join me at school the following day, and uh, with no classes scheduled, I'd take him up to the writing center, show him where I worked. Then I'd show him around the sprawling campus there in Springfield. We both swelled with pride as we ascended the steps up to Pummel Hall. Oh, it was great. Here we were, reunited. After half a lifetime of rocky relationship, punctuated by divorce, abandonment, reconciliation, even a fist bite or two, father and son. Posters on the wall reminded me that the English department was to have a guest that evening, poet laureate Miller Williams from University of Arkansas would be reading and speaking to a packed house on campus. The Miller Williams. The Miller Williams who read at Bill Clinton's inauguration. The Miller Williams. Every bulletin board boasted of the bearded poet. <clears throat> Faculty would be supportive. Students would be offered extra credit. Grad students would squeal like schoolgirls. Like a hive in midsummer, Pummel Hall buzzed with anticipation. At the writing center, we strolled around the room while I explained to Dad the psychological effects of an open area, casual setting, round tables, Potted plants. <laughs> the north wall was all windows, you know. I explained that to Dad as we gazed over the quad below, the soft light further enhancing the writing environment. Dad was somewhere else, though, uh, it seemed as I glanced his way, staring ahead into nothingness as though he hadn't heard a word I'd been saying. Admittedly, I'd noticed his hearing was failing, and I'd made it a point to speak up, to speak clearly. Dad? But no, this was something more. Uh, his cheek quivered a bit, and his eyes, those commanding eyes I knew so well, filled with a father's resolve, closed tightly as he sought his composure. I never learned what he was thinking about at that moment, what rushed over him, what he was about to say. Was it his past which had gazed back at him through that window? Was it my future? Or was it the intersection of the two, sort of a twilight zone where E.B. White can return to the lake again and again and again as himself, as his father, as his own son? Then, as suddenly as it had been cast, the spell lay shattered on the floor, broken. Plan to keep him to yourself, Michael? I heard. Behind me had formed a little line, a line of graduate students, their eyes alight with anticipation. 
There must have been a dozen of them beaming, whispering to one another, crowding in to get a closer look. I shared an incredulous glance with Dad, and that's when the same voice implored, introduce us, introduce us. I had just been summoned from the very bottom of an emotional barrel. I'd never even peered into it before, much less entered it. A few moments ago, Dad and I had been on the verge of sharing something, something, something greater than the Pequod, deeper than Derrida, something metaphysical. Now I couldn't remember a single name. Uh, why don't I just get out of the way, I ask, and uh, let you folks introduce yourselves. <clears throat> I quickly took a couple strides backward, thankful for the moment to gather myself. And the people bunched in a little tighter as though Dad were a superstar or something. The first, reaching out for his hand. Stepping back from the throng, the throng to a corner, I was afforded a new perspective on the scene. Dad nodded positively and smiled, clasping briefly each hand offered. Whatever was being said, most of which he couldn't hear, I'm sure, seemed to please him immensely, as though he were accepting a, an award or uh, something. Gradually, like a lens coming into focus, I zoomed beyond Dad to a sketched portrait of the poet. The poet who had Pummel Hall in such a stir. I began to amuse myself with the similarities between the two of them, but before I could complete the thought, reality settled around me like so much sand. Dad's audience was there to meet Miller Williams. <laughs> the whirlwind ended as suddenly as it had started. Once we were out on the quad, on our, on our way to the parking lot, Dad gripped my shoulder in an emotional moment, turned me around to face him. Son, he said, I couldn't be more proud. I mean, I'm proud of you, he blubbered through tears. The warm reception your peers gave me up there, uh, <laughs> it reveals to me a son I didn't know I had. I mean, I'm impressed by your education and your journey, but it's your presence as a man <laughs> that makes me so proud. We stood there for a moment, both teary, both clinging to something that never lasts for long. That fleeting moment when everything makes sense, when all the boundaries fall, when the ego dies and erases the line between truth and lies, when the journey outweighs the destination. Dad, I said, finally breaking the silence, let's go get some lunch. <laughs> he and I never spoke of that day again. Originally from Branson, Missouri, Michael Casey now lives 15 miles from there in rural Taney County with his wife, Nancy. Next on Tales from the South, Vicki Penny meets folks who may or may not exist in The Angels of Packingtown.
I spoke into the phone very, very clearly and softly. Get here in the next 15 minutes. I'll pay you double and in cash. I casually placed the receiver back on the cradle and grabbed every bit of green I had in my purse and headed rapidly toward the door. It was the early 90s and I was in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, working as a staffing coordinator for a temporary service. My responsibilities included providing qualified employees to area businesses. From laborers to office staff, we had it all. To be successful as a staffing coordinator, a person needed three skills. A keen eye for good workers, provide timely service, and keep the clients happy. December was an especially busy time. Between staffing for the holidays and delivering gifts for clients, the office was a hopping place. It was a cold and rainy Christmas Eve that found me out of the office most of the day delivering goodies. Late in the afternoon, I returned to warm up and dry out before heading home to enjoy the holiday. Then there it was, sitting on my desk, one more delivery. Fine. It was a little after 4 p.m. The sun would be setting soon, so I gathered the address from the company files, loaded my car, and drove toward the gritty remains of the old train yards and packing town. I would be delivering the holiday items to a company called WWIB. I don't remember what the letters stood for, but they were a good, dependable clients. They hired many day laborers and paid on time. The company lived off the carcasses of the dying train industry by cannibalizing the old rusty rail cars. Southeast Arkansas has a rich history of railroading. Many families, including mine, had lived well off the benefits the industry had brought to the area. But just as the old saying goes, nothing lasts forever, the love affair between the railroad and the Delta was over. I drove through the east side of town, past the shingle-sided shanties and boarded-up shacks, meandering my way through the thin, twisted roads and across abandoned railroad tracks. Finally, I came upon a simple metal building. The lights were on, so hopefully somebody had to be there. It was almost dark, but this would only take a moment, and with that happy thought in mind, I grabbed the gifts and climbed out of the car. As soon as the car door closed, I realized I had made a terrible mistake. I had locked my keys in the car with the engine running and with very little fuel. Great. I took a deep breath, put a smile on my face, and entered the building. The main structure inside the place was lined wall to wall with dark yellow painted lockers. A couple of restrooms separated the locker room from a smaller room with a desk. I heard some sounds and I said, hello, and I heard a, a soft voice, hardly a whisper. An older, bald, dumpy man dressed in a blue stained coveralls shuffled up to me. He was pushing a janitor's cart and dragging him up, and I said, is this WWIB? Never heard of him. I'm just the cleaning man and he mumbled and pushed his cart slowly past me. I stood with the gifts still in my arms. Is there a phone? I locked my keys in my car. Go look on the desk in there. He nodded toward the other room, but, but I'm just the cleaning man. Fine, great, whatever. I thought as I walked to the desk, 
found the phone and dropped the packages. Who do I call? I began opening drawers. Now the corner of my eye, I spied the janitor. He was looking at me. And I said, just looking for a phone book. Yeah, okay. I'm just the cleaning man. And he turned and began digging through his cart. Luckily, there was an age-torn phone book, and I began calling every locksmith in town until one answered. I explained the situation and the location. Ma'am, the locksmith said, I've lived in this town over 30 years, and I don't know where you're at. Hang on a minute. At that moment, I began to hear the cleaning man. He was mumbling something as he slipped on thick rubber gloves. I acted as though I wasn't noticing, but I was listening. As he said to no one in particular, yeah, things happen out here nobody knows about. <laughs> things go missing, and it ain't just things. And he chuckled to himself. I, I kind of missed the humor. Ma'am, the locksmith was back on the line. I think I got an idea where you're at, but I'll be out there in a little while. And I spoke softly and clearly into that receiver. You get here in the next 15 minutes, and I'll pay double and in cash. The janitor continued with his muttering, bad things. You wouldn't believe the bad things I've seen. I hastily walked past the janitor, more like a run, and said, I'll, I'll wait outside. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Outside in the cold and rain, I was very careful. I stood still in the darkness, out of sight of the windows. It hadn't been more than a few minutes when a brown beat up a conaline van with one headlight rolled up. That locksmith must have driven fast. I watched as three guys hopped out and surveyed the car. One slipped a thin piece of metal between the driver's side window and the door. Pop went the lock. That was my cue, and I wasn't going to miss it. I ran out of the shadows. I could tell I had surprised them. And I did as I was promised and shoved every bit of cash I had into the first hand I saw, jumped in, and drove away. I barely had enough gas to make it to the gas station. As I sat filling the tank, I reflected on the situation and how lucky I had been. But then something occurred to me. That van... Those guys, they never identified themselves. There had been no sign on the side of the van, and nobody had offered me a business card. Who were those guys? Well, Merry Christmas to the angels of Packingtown. Vicki Penny lives in Northwest Arkansas where she enjoys sharing stories with family and friends. In our final story of the night here at Tales from the South, Ken McGoy is mistaken for a realtor in Lake Dougal. Recently, we put our house on the market, not through a realtor, a FISBO. When we stuck the sign in the yard, my wife worked in the house, was home all day, most days. The sign now has only her phone number, some things I just couldn't be trusted with. We know this because early on, one of her realtor friends stopped by with just the perfect buyers, had to show it right then. Perfect buyers leaving town shortly. 
Holly was out running errands, so I said, come on in. Upon her return, I told her Martha had showed the house to some perfect buyers. She stopped in her tracks and repeated what I said in an inaudible fashion, just her lips moving as she processed. Never a good sign. As I could sense the situation deteriorating rapidly, I offered up. They weren't actually perfect buyers anyhow, just kicking tires, Holly said. And you knew this when you just opened the door, then made a grand sweeping gesture with her hand as if she were directing traffic and said, come on in. A long pause for effect. Then she said, I thought so. I was immediately relegated to official dog handler. There's just so much cleaning you have to do before showing, regardless of the situation. Typically, she arranged for showings in the afternoon. At some point during the morning, she had turned into a whirling dervish of clean, a human vortex of sparkle. Our dogs could sense from the look when the cleaning was not typical, something else was afoot. First thing you know, they would both be under the desk wire work, occasionally peeking out around the desk legs, all bug-eyed, as if to say, save us, Dad. At some time, pre-showing, she would ban us to the grate out of doors. You and the dogs go outside. I'll holler at you after the floors have dried. I could just tell she really meant to say, you dogs go outside. <laughs> but so far, she had managed the distinction. Since offering up our house for sale, she has taken on a full-time job. Gets home about six-ish. She then started show having showings at seven in the evening. Could get in a full hour of frenzy. A realtor called, had seen the sign, and naturally had just the perfect buyers. No way a seven o'clock showing would work. Wanted a showing window of between four and 5.30 the next day. So the next morning she was up early, getting it done. The pups and I staying out of the way. At some point after she had done about all she could do, she sat me down to give me my detailed instructions for the showing. The lighting part was simple. If it had a light bulb in it or even close to it, turn it on. <laughs> no exceptions. Try to stay out of the bathrooms till after the showing. Not real sure she had thought that one through, but that was just my opinion, so I didn't offer it up. <laughs> Where to spray the special blend of herbs and spices air freshener? Which places to give extra spritzes? Would leave it on the kitchen island where even I stood a good chance of finding it without having to call. If I, for some reason, none of which she could think of, have to use a hand towel, how to properly refold, don't just throw as normal. At some point, I expected her to ask how I felt about discontinuing that breathing in and out thing, <laughs> at least till after the showing. Of the aforementioned pups, one is a smart, demure little pound puppy. She can't do enough to please. Then there's Dougal, our black pug. Uh, don't get me wrong, he's my buddy. Stays with me around the clock. If I take three steps, Duke takes three. 
If I scratch, Duke scratches something. We even snore like we're told. He's just a tad obstinate. And before Holly had gone to work, he was rarely left by himself. Turns out leaving him alone is something that doesn't sit too well. Almost daily, I have to be gone from the house, anywhere from one hour to six. Early on, almost invariably, when I'd get back home, Duke would have peed on something. We determined it was mostly a matter of him being PO'd. We got belly bands for him, which helped, but didn't complete, completely solve the problem. As luck would have it, I had to go out the afternoon of the showing, left about two, and got back about three. First thing, checked the belly band, and sure enough, Duke had hiked his leg somewhere. And judging from his belly band, it was possible it was just a token hike. Still, I looked everywhere and couldn't find a drop, even went around sniffing like that was going to work. But in case uh, this incident had some blowback, I wanted to be able to tell Holly I did everything I could think of to find a spot. Remember looking at my watch, 4.02. Thought I'd better get to my assigned duties. First order of business, turn on lights. Started in the front hall, two switches. Flipped them on, turned around, and bam. There it was, Lake Ducal. <laughs> right in the middle of the front door. The light now glimmering off the tiny ripples in the pool. Even thought I got a whiff of it and wonder why that didn't happen earlier. Much, much more than just a token hike. Looking back from that point on, things are a bit blurred. I remember rounding up everything I would need for a red alert cleanup, not my first pool party, so to speak. So here I was, butt stuck up right in the middle of the front door, trying to round up pee. Now I need to mention that our front door's glass can actually see from our front porch to the fence in the backyard. Somewhere in the cleaning process, a long ways from being done, ding dong, it seemed louder than normal. Had actually forgotten what all was going on, caught up in the moment. Reminds me now of the old saying that goes something like, when you're up to your butt and alligators, it's hard to remember your original intent was to drain the swamp. <laughs> On the front porch were three sets of pearly whites, smiling, light glistening off their teeth, busted. I smiled back, held up a finger, maybe not the one you're thinking of, <laughs> indicated, uh, indicating I'd be just a minute, then continued with the roundup. I never turned around to see how things were going on the porch, just continued cleaning. For some reason, it felt as if the pressure was no longer on. Figured from here on out, didn't matter much what I did. After dealing with Lake Dougal, I even went and got the special container of herbs and spices and managed a few spritzes. Earlier that morning, as Holly was about to walk out the door, we had to go over last minute details and instructions again. After she laid it out one last time, I said, you don't think I can do this, do you? She looked at me and matter-of-factly said, you'll do fine. 
Then she reached to open the door, turned to face me and said, by the way, Ken, your shirt's on backwards. Ken McGoy lives here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Born in Magnolia, Arkansas many, many years ago, Ken has one wife, one daughter, one son-in-law-to-be, and two dogs. So how about our stories and storytellers tonight? Thank you to all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience here at the Bistro at the Chancellor Hotel. And thank you to UALR Public Radio. Tales from the South is presented by Timonos Publishing Company and the Midnight Muse Writing Workshops. And tonight's show is sponsored by Last Night Fayetteville. More at lastnightfayetteville.com. Additional support provided by UALR School of Mass Communications, the Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow, Litterock Soiree Magazine, UALR's Department of Rhetoric and Writing, the North Litterock Visitors Bureau, the Arkansas Arts Council, and the Oxford American, the Southern Magazine of Good Writing. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio, and you can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from all Southerners. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night. Happy New Year. And we'll see you next week for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at robinwoodbnb.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at bakerhousenlr.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience Tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing Tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive. And we'll see you next week on Tales from the South.
Dance, dance.